Welcome to the Social Impact Pulse, a podcast where we aim to cultivate intimate conversations with entrepreneurs working at the intersection of the sustainable livelihoods and lifestyle sectors. Each episode is a no-filter conversation with entrepreneurs where we dig deep into the values they hold dear and how that molds and shapes the social impact they strive for through their organizations. In this episode, we are joined by Shannon Keith, founder of Sudara, a certified benefit corporation that offers a beautiful line of apparel crafted by brave women in India who wish to remain free from the sex trade. We'll hear about how Shannon views and cultivates impact at both a personal and professional level, the hybrid business model that has evolved over time, the moments that have made her proud, and how she would like Sudara to be remembered as a business that led with integrity to break cycles of poverty. On with the show. Hi, my name is Shannon Keith. I am the founder and CEO of Sudara, and we are a certified benefit corporation that exists to help women out of sex trafficking in India through um, skills training and job creation. And we do that through a beautiful line of pajamas and loungewear. And so basically we um, are all about giving women choice over their future through economic empowerment, because we believe that when women have choices and economic power, they can literally change the trajectory of their own life and future generations and lift themselves and their children out of poverty and um, break, you know, cycles of poverty and sex slavery. Shannon, could you take us to the beginning and tell us about how Sudara came into being? What motivated you to start this venture? Yeah, so my husband and I took a trip to India in 2004. Um, This is when we were early married, before we had children, fell in love with the people, the culture, the food, all of it. I, I felt so at home there and loved it so much. And saw some really hard things at the same time. Um, we we were working with an, a faith-based NGO over there and loved it so much. We went back the next year in 2005 and through that experience was introduced to a brothel community because our family was dedicating a fresh water well that was matched with a community in need. And it happened to be matched with quote, a brothel community. And then I was like, what is that? What does that even mean? I know the term brothel, but I've never heard it in the context of a community. Um, And so the more I found out, the more devastated I became that there were literally women and children trapped through no um, choice of their own in this situation of um, a lot of it generational kind of sex work. And so um, that was a very new concept back in 2005. So we're talking almost 17 years ago now that we're in 2022. This was, this was not on people's radar. People didn't know what it was when I came back and I was telling people, they kind of thought I was exaggerating or sensationalizing and, oh, how can it be 2005? And I've never heard of this. And, you know, I'd pull up like the tip report <laughs> from the US State Department or whatever, like, no, it's a real thing like here it is. And so that trip is what, um, just the exposure to the atrocity is what just broke my heart in about a thousand pieces. And I knew that I had to do something, just do my small part to, yeah, try and bring women and children that deserve it, just dignity and opportunity. And how has Sadara evolved as a business and how did you land on your particular business model as well? Yeah, thank you for asking because that is a question and we're constantly evolving, right? We haven't, <laughs> I think, arrived at our final destination yet, but we actually started as um, as a nonprofit, a 501c3 out of that trip. And we're doing um, the, the pajamas and loungewear business, pajamas, as a program basically under the nonprofit umbrella. And we did that for some time. And part of that is because I didn't 
have um, an entrepreneurial background, though I had like a corporate business background. You know, my parents are amazing essential workers and, you know, didn't go to college. I'm a first year generation college graduate but didn't have entrepreneurial uh, people in my family to say, hey, you could do this as a business. It was more like, oh, you want to help people? You want to help women and children? You should start a nonprofit. That's what nonprofits do. And again, back in 2005, this was before the you know, Tom Shoes hadn't hit the market. Like there weren't a lot of social businesses. You could look at like Ben and Jerry's or Patagonia maybe, but other than that, you didn't really see a lot of um, nonprofits doing a lot of business functions. And so we started then. um, And then, you know, just my personal life evolved. I got pregnant with twins, (laughs) took a hiatus out of the workforce. And when I, uh, after the birth of our third child, I had been serving as like a nonprofit founding board member volunteer. I was like, you know, now, Tom Shoes, other things, they've proven the market that there there is a market out there for helping people through business and using business as sort of a force for good. And so pitched it to the board to, you know, spin the business component out. So now we're actually a hybrid organization and we have two distinct entities. We still have the 501c3 nonprofit that has wraparound services. But we really wanted to scale to help more people and businesses are poised usually to scale faster than nonprofits. And so then we have um, a certified benefit corporation that is a for-profit entity and that's the Sudar Inc. side. So we have the Freedom Fund side and then the Inc. side and they work together hand in hand on a singular mission, again, creating opportunities for women and their children. So tell us about the name Sudara. What does that mean? It is um, inspired from a Sanskrit word uh, that means beautiful. And so um, that Sundara that has an N in it, of course, that is a, a fairly familiar word. And so we couldn't get the URL or anything just from like a practical perspective when having to think about a website and those sort of things. So we, we um, took inspiration from that and then made a word that we can infuse our own meaning. And so we really believe there's nothing more beautiful than freedom and that human beings were created for dignity and freedom and that everyone should have that opportunity. And so really like freedom is is the the most quintessential form of beauty. Um, It's kind of, you know, the meaning that that we've put on that word, I guess. Well, Shannon, we'd love to hear a little bit more about how you cultivate impact, both at a personal level and how that manifests itself through the brand Sudara. It's such a good, deep question. You know, this is sort of like, I think the, the crux of like life, right? These big philosophical questions. And for me, it has to start inward. It's like, as you know, my therapist says, all the work we do is an inner job, right? You don't look to other people, they need to be fixed or whatever. It's like, it always starts inward. And so for me, impact starts there. You know, how do I view the world? How do I view other people? How do I view the impact, um, positive, negative, you know, whatever that I have on my people in my life, my relationships on the planet? you know, how am I stewarding my own heart first? And then from there, sort of concentric circles, my own household, my own neighborhood, my own community, you know, and how do I show up in each of those ways? And so for me, it's less about, you know, doing and more about being. What type of human being am I? And then from there, that will inform the ways in which I act and the ways in which I show up. And so my actions um, will follow out of my being you know, who, who am I and how do I show up? So that for me, that's how I view impact, that it's like this very integrated thing. It's not something I do. It's sort of my outlook on life and my personal sort of theology. And then from there, um, that informs how I, how I show up 
um, in the world and the actions that I take. And, and so that means, you know, the type of friendships I want to cultivate, the type of employees I want to work with, you know, it informs literally everything I do, how I spend my time, the books I read, you know, um, all of it. Do you feel that you take that view and belief and your vision of impact and translate that into Sudara through the employees and through the business and help them to see that impact in that way as well? I hope so. I mean, one of the um, phrases my husband and I live by at home, like with our children, is that um, you can't export what you don't have. Right. So you have to start from a place of, you know, this is who I am. This is it's in me. So therefore, when I talk about it or do it, it's authentic. Right. So that, you know, that's part of our parenting sort of philosophy and other things. So I'm hoping I don't do a lot of like preaching at my employees, you know, our, like our team, but it, it tends to be, I think it needs to be modeled, right? It's kind of like culture isn't dictated, it's lived. And, and so I hope that people see that, you know, in my life and, and who I am and it's reflected. And of course we have things, we have core values, we have all the things that speak to that, but I don't think it matters um, if they're not seeing it sort of in me. And I'm by no means like this, like perfect, you know, human being at all. I have tons of flaws, tons of, you know, I yell at my kids sometimes, I, you know, all, all the things that we all do as human beings, but my intention is to be the best version of myself. And so I hope that that comes through. I mean, I think it does. <laughs> we'll see. You'll have to ask others. <laughs> That's a hard question to ask me. <laughs> what are three moments that have made you proud as founder of Sadara? Yeah, there's so many. I mean, it's hard to narrow it down to just three because I feel proud on behalf of our whole team, right? It isn't just me. Like as I view things, it's like definitely like I I feel proud of what we like collectively as, and not just our like the staff, but really as our community, which includes all of our stakeholders. I mean, that's how I view it. So for customers, you know, they're part of this thing because if if we didn't have people who supported and who donated, like it doesn't matter if we make millions or whatever pajamas, if no one wants them or buys them, it's all for not. So I think I felt proud on behalf of our community in a few different ways. One of the first has been kind of fun. It's when I would recognize products from people like just randomly, like in an airport, you know, like I might be in an airport somewhere and I'm like, oh my gosh, or my kid will be like, oh my gosh, mom, they're wearing two dark pants or whatever. Like they'll recognize it. And like we're at a random airport in Dallas. Like that's cool, you know, for a little brand to see someone who's not, you know, just your friends or family, like sporting your goods. Like that's really fun to see. Another one is, you know, every time I go to India, I'm just like bursting with so much thankfulness and gratitude and satisfaction of seeing how hard our team and our community's work is paying off. So we have these amazing partners in India and to get to see like the women and the children and their faces and the joy and all of the, like what a life restored actually looks like, because I've seen women in the brothels and I've seen that life and it's super hard and oppressive and abusive and soul stealing. And then to see some of those same women and young people now like living this like beautiful life and thriving. They're not just surviving, they're actually thriving. That makes me so happy. That's why we're doing this. That's why we endure all the the grind, as they say, and the stupid shipping issues and the expensive this and that, and you know, whatever, all the, the hard parts about the business, because those, the joy on the women's and kids' faces is priceless. Like you just can't, you can't put a number on that. 
So those have been really fun times. And then another like full circle moment from India. And it's one of my favorite stories ever, but one of the women, young women that had gone through the program and then gotten a job. So basically with our partners, it's all about the pajamas create revenue that kick off monies that um, basically subsidize skills training programs. So you can imagine not every woman who is at high risk or um, a survivor of the sex industry wants to be a seamstress, right? And, and we would only need so many women to serve pajamas. So that's just a very small slice of the jobs that we train in and the job placement. So they get to pick about 11 different vocational options at this time and 1,200 women a year go through the program. So it's like 300 every quarter. And depending on what the program is, sometimes there's like phase one, phase two, phase three. But anyway, within about nine months, most of them are ready to get you know, back on their feet in a real job. So this one woman, um, her first job paycheck that she got, she came back and donated a hundred percent of her paycheck back to the program and, and told our partner that like she, and they were like, no, no, this is your first check. And she was like, no, I'm so happy to do this. Will you help other women that were in my same position? And so it's just like, oh my gosh, seeing that like come full circle is the best. Wow. That's such a powerful story. So I'm curious about the different 11, did you say, vocational skills that the women get to train in? Could you tell us more about that? What's been so cool, and this is, again, such a proud moment on behalf of our partners in India, they're so smart in um, in going to the market to see what are marketable skills that that will land them in jobs, right? So like, we're not going to train women in basket weaving if there are no jobs in basket weaving <laughs> in the place that they're at. So they really went to the market and did a pretty extensive study across a spectrum of aptitude because women who've um, either been born into the brothels or whatever, uh, and some, you know, had some level of education and then came later. So you have women who are completely illiterate, who cannot read and write, but are super intelligent and smart. They've just lacked opportunities. So they're going to have different options than women who maybe were able to complete like through the eighth grade or even high school, and then had a traumatic event that landed them in the brothels, right? So there's very different. So there are things like literally just vocational training that you can learn without reading and writing, like sewing and baking and childcare and other beautician kind of like threading and henna art and um, haircutting and stuff like that. So there's like really good, like particularly beauticians, women around the world pay to have beauty services, <laughs> which is really great and a pretty good wage. So, so there are those. And then if you can read and write, it opens up different aptitudes. So maybe you can be trained um, to do data entry. And so you can have some like computer training skills. Um, if you're literate, you could do spoken English. That's a really lucrative, good opportunity for like translate. Um, in India. There are some more technical things that you could also do if you've had a little higher level of education and have aptitude to do other things like there's like plumbing. Um, and these are things a little bit more usually require some like book kind of knowledge, um, some light mechanical work. So to like be able to fix like the, um, what are they called? The tuk-tuks <laughs> kind of things or like the motorbikes, you know, those sort of things. And so um, like a woodworking and kind of like a welding. So there's like this gamut really of, you know, lots of different from artistic to more, um, you know, cerebral to more hands-on, but like engineer type jobs. So yeah, quite a lot of variety. And on the flip side of those moments that have made you proud on behalf of the community, what is it that keeps you up at night? What are some of those fears and, and struggles? Just the, the fickleness of, of the market, actually. 
and the kind of consumerism that tends to like go in different directions for no apparent reason, you know, fads, trends, you know, whatever, that sort of thing. We tried to pick a product that, that is kind of insulated from that, you know, pajamas and loungewear everyone has and likes and owns, even if they don't sleep in them, you know, you're going to put them on when you get out of bed to like go down and make your coffee or whatever. So we tried to pick something like that, but honestly, yeah, what keeps me up is just the way to reach consumers has become so difficult in this online um, arena, particularly with COVID when all the brick and mortar stores were sort of shuttered and there were little brands like us who were only online, but then we're having to compete with Macy's and Victoria's Secret and REI and everyone else in the world. And they have huge multi-million dollar budgets to like buy ad space and eyeballs and there's no way we can compete with them. And in digital, I mean, for most consumers, you know, may or may not know, but it's an auction environment. And so like getting eyeballs to websites, it's, it's whoever pays the most, pays the highest bidder. So it's an auction. It's not just like, oh, well, I have a little bit of money. Let's do this. It's like, if you don't quote win out on the auction, like your ads never get seen. So it's, um, and quite honestly, with all the stuff that has come out with Facebook and, you know, everything that we have been suspecting anyway, but with the whole whistleblower thing, and they knew even around like trafficking of children, like, like things that are completely opposed to our mission. Do I want to continue to give money to these places who are not only not aligned, but maybe are working against my values and mission? The answer is no, (laughs) I don't. So then our challenge is, okay, well then what do we do? How do we allocate those funds in a way where we can still get customers, but that we don't feel like we're dealing in blood money or something, not to be dramatic, but just as a (laughs) kind of a metaphor. So what keeps me up at night is basically kind of like our customer acquisition strategy. Yeah. So we're having to evolve because we can no longer compete with all the big whales that jumped into the pool, basically the online pool. How would you like to be remembered? What's the legacy that you're hoping for? You know, I think uh, I, I love this question because I love I love thinking about legacy and like big long-term plays because that's, you know, we don't want to be flash in the pan. We want to be remembered for being a leader in the space and being unwavering and uncompromising in our mission and our conviction and having, you know, so much integrity. In, in the way that we go about helping people, right? We don't want to be like Machiavellian or something. Um, we really want to have, yeah, integrity all along the journey. And, and then yeah. when we find out like, you know, things like I said, with our ad money spend going to companies, it's like, oh, if that doesn't feel right, then we need to make hard decisions and say, okay, we're not going to do that anymore then. So then what are we going to do? You know what I mean? So that's the type of integrity I want, even when it feels like, well, you can't not, do Facebook ads? Like, really? Why not? You know? So it's like, once you know better, you have to do better, right? I can't remember who said that, but they were a very smart person. (laughs) It isn't lost on me that there are a lot of people that are trying to do good things, but the way they go about doing them isn't very good, (laughs) right? So we don't want to be that. We want to be a leader in the space who went beyond the one-for-one give back model. We're not about charity. We're about really empowering people and changing the narrative and really helping to reduce poverty and break cycles of poverty by this population we really are passionate about, which are you know uh, women and children that are trapped or at highest risk of sex trafficking. And so we want to be known for being bold and brave and honest and good. 
not perfect, but like making progress, right? Like we, we just want to be better tomorrow than we are today kind of thing. And so if something happens to me or the, or the company, I hope that it can be, you know, that can be said of us. What would you do if you could be unreasonable and the sky was the limit? What are some of your aspirations? I love it so much. Yeah, I am pretty unreasonable. So, <laughs> so you're, you're speaking my language. We are, we did ask ourselves that question and actually we're, we're making a shift into 2022 and we just feel like our mission is too important to play small. And so we want to play bigger in 2022 and we want to align with like big brands and, and leverage their marketing, <laughs> right. And what they're, they're doing so that we don't have to be limited based on our limited marketing budgets um, to have our mission out there in a way that deserves attention. And so we we are, and what I would do and what we are going to do is, is to focus on B2B business in a big way, not like little boutiques, but like a big kind of multinational way so that again, we can give our mission what we feel like the attention it deserves. And so 2022 is kind of like our go big, hopefully not go home. <laughs> but I mean, that's always a possibility, right? Because I don't have a crystal ball, but it's, it's time to stop playing small and, and take some bigger risks. So that's what we're going to do. That is so exciting to hear. And it would seem that that sort of collaboration with those who have the resources can, can only be a win. Right. I mean, we, we hope that they see it that way. <laughs> so that's where the, the challenge will be. It'll really test my um, saleswomanship, I guess, to like help educate people why this is a good business decision for them, um, because it really is. It really is. And it's what consumers want. It's what the world needs to have good business practices and to stop exploiting people and planet. Like we just, I mean, we just have to stop doing that. It's not working. <laughs> right. And and you can make money uh, and do good at the same time. And so, yeah, I feel like the tide is turning and maybe hopefully the world is ready for more of that. Yes. And that ties in nicely to our wrap up question. But before we get there, I wondered as well, Shannon, if you could share with us how you've seen this marketplace evolve over time. What is it that makes you hopeful to work with these big brands? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's been a wild ride and journey up and down. Um, at first I was a little bit naive actually. And I thought when you were helping people that others would see that and, and, and have more integrity, but man, I got to tell you, we got burned quite a bit in the early days and sort of all the way through. And some of it is like, you know, I'm not Pollyanna at all. Um, but I do see the good in people and I want to see the potential, right? And so what I have seen is I feel like once social businesses started getting more press, there's a lot of hope in the younger generation. So like, like recent college graduates or people coming out of business school, like there are schools now with social entrepreneurial programs at their B school or even undergrad. Like that wasn't a thing in 2005. Certainly wasn't a thing when I graduated from college in 96. So I have seen that sort of evolution, which has been nice. The downside has been, I think on the investment side, I still think that investors, and when you follow the money, they're wanting to invest in good, but they're still squeezing 
the entrepreneur on the margins. And so like that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. It's more expensive to do business in an ethical way. So you, you have to give almost like a monetary value to the impact that you're doing and see that as a valid return. That, that hasn't happened, which has been highly disappointing. Hopefully that will start happening a little bit more now as we see that, um, you know, what everyone's been talking about for some time is like the largest shift in money. So as the boomers age out and those funds are transferred to either, you know, um, like Gen X, which is what I am at. And everyone forgets our generation, by the way, all they talk about are boomers and millennials and then Gen Z. I'm like, wait a minute. There's, there's a whole generation that you always look over Gen X. That's me. Um, but anyway, so I think that there's an opportunity where women and these other upcoming generations are going to be responsible for this huge transfer of wealth that has by and large been in the hands of, you know, older white men or whatever. So I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for that shift to come. It hasn't come yet, but I'm hopeful um, that it will. And that would be a huge win. I think like a missing piece that we're not seeing. It's something a lot of people don't talk about, but as a social entrepreneur, you feel every day. And then what I will say, what I'm really hopeful for that had maybe to do with the pandemic, maybe not, but post um, the murders of George Floyd and the others, just a focus on underrepresented communities, um, particularly the BIPOC community and how we need to give a voice and a seat at the table and more recognition and more opportunities for those voices who have historically been oppressed to come to the forefront. And so that I think is really exciting, particularly as a social entrepreneur, I'm a woman of color myself, and then certainly working with populations of color. That I think is, is what we need to get unstuck um, because everyone can give a lot of rhetoric like, oh, the world needs to be better. We need to do this, this, and that better. But until the power is shifted to those people who can make a difference, it's still kind of same, same status quo. Well, Shannon, this has been such a great conversation and always fun to catch up with you. As a final question, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs in the social impact space? Yeah, one, I would just say, go for it. I mean, we need more social entrepreneurs. Be brave, be courageous. You're never going to have all your ducks in a row. Don't seek for perfection. Like that's an illusion. Just be true to who you are um, and, and what values you hold and what you feel like you can offer the world and go for it. And then surround yourself by really good, trustworthy people. Not yes people who will tell you what you want to hear, but people who love you, have your back, and will tell you what you need to hear. <laughs> Not always what you want to hear. Yeah, but I would say, you know, don't let good be the enemy of great. Just start and then you can iterate and build. Um, but it's it's much easier to move a moving ship <laughs> than one that's just stuck in the in the dock. So you, you gotta just, you know, kind of quit making excuses and start. You know, I would just say um, for anyone listening and, you know, maybe it's the echo chamber. So this is just an encouragement for people who already believe the same as we do. Um, it really is. You have more power than you think. Like the individual has so much power in just the money that you spend, the money that you spend on rent, <laughs> what type of neighborhood you live in, you know, who you choose to be your landlord, who you choose to be your roommates, what kind of car you drive, what kind of food you eat, all the consumable products you put in your body um, and on your body and around your house. Like you're making choices every single day, whether you want to be part of an inclusive and a good economy or just the same stuff that has landed our world in, in these problems with just like a cheap, you know, slave-ridden economy. So the choice is yours. Um, again, it's not up to governments. 
um, or, or social entrepreneurs to fix the world. It's up to the individual to make individual choices. And, and all of those individual choices together, collectively, we're going to move forward um, as a society and humanity. But like nobody gets a pass. Many thanks for listening to this episode of the Social Impact Pulse. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your feedback and feel free to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't already, do check out our short promo created especially for this episode. The Social Impact Pulse is a project of the Artisan Gateway.